This is Owen Calfer in Dublin. This is Andrew Duncan in London. And welcome to uh, episode two of Double Booked. Double Books is a podcast for people who like children's books, graphic novels, comics, books, libraries, librarians, bookshops, bookshelves, secondhand bookshops and secondhand librarians. That sounds fantastic. Now, Andrew, could you please tell me a little bit about me? Um, you're the internationally handsome and multi-award yes. winning Owen Colfer, the author of the uh, Artemis Fowl series of books, the author of The Fowl Twins, the author of Illegal and the author of all kinds of other marvellous books as well. I was reading here that uh, in our crib sheet, it says a bit shorter than last time. And I realized that's not talking about me. That is actually <laughs> the introductions. I am not a bit shorter than last time. I don't you think are, so. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about you. You are Andrew Duncan, who has written dozens of, of books and comics and graphic novels, including some highlights, uh, story arcs on Batman for DC and uh, biographies of William Shakespeare. And of course, we have collaborated on over a thousand pages uh, of graphic novels. Not all have been published, but most have. And so we are uniquely placed and qualified to talk about children's books. Oh, we are. I think they've. I think they've all been published. And you, you, unless you can remember any, you've got the bottom drawer, which I, which I don't recall. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. And we should start off by saying a big thank you to the lovely readers and voters of the Red Book Award, because um, just a couple of weeks ago, Illegal, our graphic novel about migration across the Mediterranean, won the 2021 Red Book Award, uh, which is amazing. And thank you very much to the lovely librarians and school teachers who organised that in Scotland. Absolutely. And what this uh, award itself, the actual practical award, is quite an amazing thing because it's not a plaque. It's not a medal. Uh, it's not a piece of art. Well, it is a piece of art, but it's not a painting. Maybe you could describe to the listener what the award is. Well, it's it's a tapestry. Uh, and I think we are the first children's authors to actually win a tapestry since William the Conqueror, um, about a thousand years ago, got his hands on the famous one. It's a beautiful piece of embroidery. And it's on like a kind of quilt, quilted material. And somebody has somebody very talented has spent hours and hours um, hand embroidering all previous 14 winners of the Red Book Award. And then the fifth, the winner of the 15th year, which is our illegal uh, with Giovanni, is over the top. And, and, and it's an amazing thing. There's pictures of it on my website. There's pictures of it on your website. So if you want to see it visually, go and have a look at the social media. But it was amazing. We've won medals before. We've won certificates before. Um, we've won a lovely framed copy of our own book which is great to get a copy of your own book framed back. At least it means they bought a copy to frame. So that, that's, that's one more. But to actually have a tapestry that's been handmade is amazing. So thank you very much to everybody at the Red Book Awards. Um, one of your children tells me that you've taken to sleeping underneath the tapestry, using it as a quilt. Is that true? I'm, and if I'm, so... I'm offering no comment on that publicly. <laughs> Well, let's move on rapidly because that sounds does not sound like a denial to me. What are we gonna What are we gonna talk about today? Uh, okay, so today's running schedule is um, me, myself, and I is my choice, and it's the Children of Green No by Lucy M. Boston, which is a fantastic series of children's books. So we're going to be talking about those. Then we have got some Mad Science, which is I know it was your favourite bit of the show last time, um, and we've I got some it. kids launching an amazing um, GPS expedition to the South Pole for that. And then we've got something very special. We've got a very special guest. Do you want to talk about him? 
Well, I feel this could be my new favorite section because uh, we are talking to your friend and my friend, uh, Mr. Jonathan Stroud, who is well known to millions of readers all over the world uh, as the author of the Bartimaeus trilogy, uh, among others. But he's here today to talk about the first book of his new series, uh, The Outlaws, Scarlet and Brown, which was it's kind of a it's hard to describe it, but it's a futuristic British Western, I suppose. And, and Jonathan is a is a fascinating guy, and he also knows a, a lot about crafting a really good uh, book for young people. So I think it'll be very interesting to talk to him. So we're gonna we're gonna pick his brains, and then we've got in this this um, podcast. It was rubbish, but I loved it. It's your choice. And what have you chosen for us, going all the way back to the nineteen eighties? What have you picked? I have chosen one of my favorite films and I, there was a time when I would have described it as a guilty pleasure, but I don't believe in those anymore. Uh, so this is Highlander, the original Highlander movie uh, with Sean Connery and Christophe Lambert, which was scored by Michael Kamen and Queen. Uh, and I love that movie uh, and I will die on the Highlander Hill. And uh, we will we will talk about that uh, later. And, and I guarantee you, I will get angry and also possibly cry. Oh, fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> All right. They, they can be only one. So um, there can be only one. But there were, there were, I think, four. But initially, <laughs> there could only be one. Yeah, but yeah. there were four and they're rebooting. There can be only one and three more and a reboot. That's the full... That's the full set. And an animation series. Don't forget the animation and series. And an animation series. So the re- and then we'll round off with some agony, Owen, because we've had more letters in um, uh, and, and communications from Instagram and um, um, TikTok and various things that we're on with people asking for advice from practicing writers, which is indeed what we both are. I've, I feel that really should be called don't do this at home. <laughs> so that anything I say, <laughs> anything I say, please don't do it because it won't work. Ask I'll, a, I'll do ask my a best. Maybe... Maybe you could pitch in this time and, and give me a give me a hand so I don't feel such immense pressure. But uh, that's a full that is a full schedule. That's a full and schedule. We to, um, and we know. have to bring our our, um, our our engineer Shaman said we have to bring the show in in less than four and a half hours. So the pressure is on to fit. <laughs> He's got to go home for his tea. So we got to we got to fit all that stuff in. So you know, and Jonathan can talk a bit. So we're gonna <laughs> shall we get going? We could. This is our version of, you know, the, the the Justice League, the new Justice League that has all like a million episodes, and everyone has a couple of hours of backstory. This is what I love about Highlander. I won't start that now, but that's one of the things I love. Let's get let's get going, and we go straight to your section uh, with me, my shelf, and I. Uh, that sounds like it was written by Sean Connery. Sean Connery me, my shelf, and I. Me, my, me, my shelf, and I. Hmm. I wonder what they've picked this time. It's me, my shelf. And I. So you've chosen the book series the, the Children of Green Know by Lucy M. Boston, or as I thought it was called, The Children of Green Noe, but it's not Noe. Uh, so I would like you to defend this book, Mr. Duncan, and tell me what's so darn good about it. Um, I came to this very really, I came to this as an adult. This was recommended by a friend of mine, uh, Robin Jarvis, who in himself is a, is a fantastic children's writer. And it wasn't a series that I read as a kid, but it's a series that I've read to my kids, uh, Lexi and Fisher, and they were exactly at the, the, the right age to love it. It's a series of six books, although each of them stands alone. The, the first book and the most um, well-known is The Children of Green Note. And all of the books are set in, in an old manor house, which dates back to the Norman Conquest. So it's a house which is nearly a thousand years old, has been lived in continuously for nearly a thousand years. And all of the books involve 
um, spirits of its old inhabitants crossing paths. So in the in the first book, Tolly, a boy um, goes there to live with his great grandmother, and he begins to hear um, fr mostly friendly spirits of other kids that have been there, and they eventually materialise and they become um, friends with him. And in in books in the in the um, series later on. Um, boys from the past and girls from the past come come into the present and people kind of from the future and it, it's a place where a bit like um nigel neal's stone tape theory where because of there's so much history and there's so much social interaction in the walls of this very well-loved home that timescapes kind of kind of meld and people can step from one time into another especially children with their imagination um it's very very atmospherically written um and here's just a little sample of the writing A little boy was sitting in the corner of a railway carriage looking out at the rain which was splashing against the windows and blotching downward in an ugly, dirty way. He was not the only person in the carriage, but the others were strangers to him. He was alone as usual. There were two women opposite him, a fat one and a thin one, and they talked without stopping, smacking their lips in between sentences and seeming to enjoy what they had said as much as if they were something to eat. They were knitting all the time, and whenever the train stopped the clack-clack of their needles was loud and clear like two clocks. It was a stopping train, more stop than go, and it had been crawling along through flat, flooded country for a long time. Everywhere there was water. Not sea, or rivers, or lakes, just senseless flood water with rain splashing into it. Sometimes the railway lines were covered by it, and then the train noise was quite different, softer than a boat. And um, that, yeah. Tolly arrives at the house, he's greeted by his great-grandmother, and she doesn't tell him too much about it, and he gradually um, finds out, finds the spirits of the other children, and they, and they gradually unsolve, uh, they gradually solve some of the mysteries in the house. It's a fantastically written um, book. The series grows and shows you the house in different, um, uh, different eras. And what's also amazing about it, what I really loved, is that it's based on a real book. In 1939, uh, Lucy Boston, who is the author of the series, bought a place called The Manor in Hemingford Grey, which is in Huntingdonshire, not a million miles away from Cambridge. And that that house, The Manor, dates back to the Norman Conquest. And it's one of two, only one of two houses in England that have been continually inhabited for nearly a thousand years. So there's an awful lot of history in there. And you can do tours of it. And I took, uh, Viv and I took the kids to see it last uh, two summers ago, obviously in the old world, pre-lockdown, and you can actually tour the house and you can, it's amazing to sit in a room and look at kind of bricks that had been placed there nearly a thousand years ago, a couple of years after the Norman Conquest, and know that there had been a thousand years of human communication and human song and human talk in that very room, um, that residential domestic room where you were sitting. So the whole place and the whole gardens are absolutely steeped in history. And it's a fantastic series of books, um, really well written. A uh, little bit less known now, I think, than it should be. One of them won the Carnegie Award. Others um, got runner-up in the Carnegie Award. Um, and it's The Children of Green No. There was a BBC series about it in the in the um, early 90s, late 80s. So uh, uh, that's that's my pick of my shelf for night. So it's a lovely book. It would be a wonderful book for schools because you could read the books and then the teacher could bring you on an expedition to see the house. So... That, that kind of extra element, I think, always makes a book uh, really special. And that couple of paragraphs you read are really well written and really atmospheric. Um, and the way she talks about the water, the flood water, 
wonderful. I, I, I will admit to my shame, I, have, I haven't read that. Uh, but because you get very angry if I don't read your recommendations, I'm going to scurry off uh, and, and buy that uh, immediately. And I love the setup because that's a classic setup, the child being sent to a strange uh, new house. I mean, so many books have, have sprung from that setup, but this seems to be, um, seems to be a particularly successful uh, one of yeah, it's great. He arrives at the house, which is on the floodplain of a river, and um, the so the train comes into a station, and then the car takes him as far as he can with the driver, and then the road is flooded, and then the kind of groundskeeper of the house rows up in a rowboat, and he has to get into the rowboat, and it's pitch black. There's no there's no lighting. It's the countryside, and he's just um, just rowed through the dark towards a house. And then steps wow. off of the boat and then meets his great grandma for the first time in this kind of like house in a complete lake. And the next morning when he wakes up, the floodwaters are rescinding and he's got literally kind of like a new world to go and explore. It's it's um it's a great opening. That's very like actually what does happen if you want to meet Derek Landy, you have to go on a boat in the dark. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm sorry, Derek. Just kidding. Can, uh, can we move on yes. to my sec- second favorite? Uh, part of the show which is mad science because i know you like to ferret around on the internet and uh, you have come up with yet another uh, strange story about uh, two children enterprising children who did something pretty amazing hello you're true to the weird science department have you tried turning it on and off again this is this is from the eye and it's a piece written by Catherine lofthouse credit where credit's due and i think we should maybe get these guys on the program either for a weird uh, with science feature or for they could choose their favorite book and talk about it i will read it to you earlier this year two young scottish brothers ollie and harriet ferguson smashed their own world record for most traveled toy ship sending an adapted plomobile pirate ship across the world's oceans in an odyssey that began four years ago now the brothers aged uh, 11 and 9 so they have the same mental age as us it's always nice are planning to beat even this feat by remotely leading a 20,000-kilometer circumpolar Antarctic expedition using the smallest ships to ever sail in the southern seas. The youngsters and their parents, Mac and Vicky from Aberdeenshire, are hoping to launch one-meter replicas of HMS Eridbris and HMS Terra in December for their reimagining of the Ross Scientific Expedition of 1839-43. This time, there will be purpose-built wood. The replicas will carry GPS trackers and will allow the family to follow the voyage. The ships are being carved out of Elm with help from the local men's shed association. Uh, and then someone says the tree was around 200 years old when it was felled. So it was growing when the original expedition was taking place. And that feels very special and appropriate. Ollie and Harry will help with the sanding and varnishing. We've built a replica out of pine to see how it would sit in the water and how it would work with ice. Um, and then they say, uh, this is all part of the Ferguson's taste of adventure. Seven years ago, the family came up with a list of 500 adventures they would embark on together, starting with rock pulling and a visit to a sea sanctuary. By adventure 100, they were launching Lego figures 20 miles above the earth using a large balloon with a camera so they can watch the figures progress. They document their escapades on their Facebook page. The days are just packed. Um, and they have a book called Ollie and Harry's Marvelous Adventures, um, which highlights some of their more ad- unusual uh, expeditions. So they have broken the world record twice for most traveled toy ship. Their first one got all the way across to Barbados. That's amazing. I mean, when you 
they're I mean their combined age is twenty, and they're sending ships to Barbados and launching um things. That's a coincidence. That's a real coincidence because our combined IQ is twenty. So there's something there you go. there's something magical it's going about, on with the numbers there. Uh, I feel in in many ways these guys like actually in most ways these two guys have already surpassed anything we'll ever do. So, so, science wise, yeah, yeah, I think so. But what did we need? I think we need. I'm very into RT expeditions. You know, I think we need to get them on the podcast and get get that ship story from them firsthand. Yeah, I would love to talk to those. Two I think guys. I think they're um, a future guest, so I we, think that's what we we'll do. We'll track them down and see what they have to say for themselves. And just because they're children, Andrew, I do not want to be easy on them. I want to give them like a very hard question time type interview and make them answer for their crimes. Sorry, experiments. Okay. Uh, well, they're, they're, they, there's more than a shade of um, Artemis about them. They are kind of child prodigies and child geniuses. Yeah, and there's uh yeah, absolutely. They are, but they're the real thing. You see, I had to make up Artemis's genius strokes, so and that would take me weeks to think of something that was clever enough for Artemis to have done it. But these guys just seem to be naturals. So I'm a little bit worried that they're just gonna first of all, if they've read Artemis file, they might say, Well, actually, you know, that's wrong. This wouldn't happen. This cat your calculation was wrong. Uh, and then they would say something devastatingly, you know, the way children may have devastating insults like, and your head is stupid, you know, that kind of thing. And yep. uh, then I would just go home crying. So maybe you can do a pre-interview and uh, make sure they're nice. I'm sure they're lovely. Like with big bomb, bomb disposal gloves and one of those kind of helmets that bomb disposal people wear just in case. Okay. But I think I think yeah. we need to get them on for a future, not so much weird science, but just amazing science um, interview. And if you want to read about their uh, their adventures in the meantime, then they, as I said, they have a book called Ollie and Harry's Marvelous Adventures, which which I had a look at this afternoon. And it's full of color pictures of the mad stuff that their parents are doing to make other parents like me feel uh, enfeebled and embarrassed at what rubbish parenting we're doing. I My parenting style is uh, can be summed up in kind of one sentence. It's like, look, here's 10 pounds, go away. So that's kind of that's mine. I don't know how well that's worked, uh, I, because at at some point they just don't come back, and that's and that is wrong. So I'm not uh, advocating that at all. Uh, next, we are getting on to uh, one of uh, a mutual friend of ours, Mr. J. Stroud, Jansen Stroud, uh, the wonderful, I suppose, fantasy adventure author, also comedy, who I've had the pleasure of being on tour of the U.S. twice, and uh, I know he's a close friend of yours. So let's maybe listen to a, a few paragraphs of his latest book, The Outlaws, Scarlet and Brown. Welcome to the part of the show we invite writers to. We really love them and we know you love them too. That morning, with the dawn hanging wet and pale over the marshes, Scarlet McCain woke up beside four dead men. Four! She hadn't realised it had been so many. No wonder she felt stiff. She tipped her prayer mat from its tube and unrolled it on the ground. Sitting cross-legged upon it, she tried to meditate. No luck, not with four corpses staring at her and a knife wound throbbing in her arm. A girl couldn't concentrate in those conditions. What she needed was food and coffee. She got to her feet and glared down at the nearest body. It was a portly, black-bearded Waldsman in a denim shirt and jeans. He looked old enough to be her father. Perhaps it was her father. His face, half resting on mud and stones, wore an aggrieved expression. Yeah, we've all got problems, Scarlet said. You try to rob me, that's what you get. 
She stepped over the man and went down to the lake to inspect the animal snares. Yet again, her luck was poor. The traps were broken, the noose strings bitten through. At the end of a smear of blood, a rabbit's head lay tilted in the bent, wet grass. The long, rust-brown ears were cocked upwards, as if giving her a furry two-finger salute. It was like the mud rats had deliberately left it that way. Scarlet McCain swore feelingly in the direction of the forest. Then she took a penny from her pocket and transferred it to the leather cuss box hanging at her neck. Already in the red, and she hadn't even had her breakfast. Wow, that's fantastic. And um, what I love most about that is it's like you are the master uh, of the setup and also just the layered exposition that's just layered in there so sweetly. We get so much oblique information there uh, without going really deeply into it. And I know that's all really hard to do and you've crafted all that. Uh, like, like, you know, she's an orphan. You know, she doesn't know who her father is. She, you know, she's in a lawless society. You know, she's got some kind of religion because she has a cuss box around her neck. She has a prayer mat and also that she's a hunter and that she lives in the wild. So it's just amazing. But all that is done in such an entertaining fashion that we don't even realize uh, that we're learning. So uh, yeah. kudos to you, oh, thank you. Mr. Stroud. Thank you. Well, yes, well and done. welcome to the welcome to the welcome to the program. Welcome oh, to Double Book. Pleasure. pleasure to be you here. You are you are our book. first ever guest. So that you that means <laughs> that you will be the subject in about five or ten years of you know pop quiz questions. Who was the first guest on Double Booked? Who was that? Wow. That's since an author. No guest in the first episode, and you're the guest on the second one. And you're reading there the fantastic opening to your new book, The Outlaws, Scarlet and Brown, uh, being an account of their daring exploits and audacious crimes. Um, what else wow. can you tell us about your fantastic new book series, which is newly out now and has got fantastic reviews? Well, um, it, it indeed, it, well, it, it stars Scarlet, who you heard in that in that first little excerpt, um, and she's a young uh, and formidable bank robber and outlaw in a in a kind of future. It's a future Britain. Um, it's set it's some unknown time uh, in the future where big things have happened and the post post Brexit. It's very much post Brexit. <laughs> in fact, it's it's post Brexit in the sense of being um, uh, post Brexit after uh, after Brexit. I decided I had to write something. Um, that dealt with kind of the fracturing and the breaking up of of, of Britain. So um, this is this is it. Being a fantasy writer, I got rid of all the all the kind of parties and boring political stuff, and just had a, a world of cannibals and monsters and and various kingdoms. So yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. And what is the um, what is the hero's journey, Jonathan? In this, what do Scarlet and Brown have to do? Well, so Scarlet starts off, and she's as you heard from the beginning, she's she's deeply you know formidable and can kill four men without without really breaking sweat. And she's she thinks that you know she's got it all sorted, but actually she's very lonely and has all kinds of problems. And uh, she doesn't realise this until she meets uh, this boy called Albert Brown, who she rescues from a wrecked bus in the middle of nowhere. And she takes him uh, rather against her will. She takes him to, to towards safety, um, but bad things happen to them, and she begins to realise that there's more to him than meets the eye. And her um, the journey really is about characters, because I don't know about you guys, but I, I think that a um, you know a book that's worth reading usually you've got a couple of characters in the middle who bounce off each other, and if they're opposites, so much the better. And if they've got a bit of sarcasm and um, they're good at um, taking the mickey out of each other, then, you know, that's, that's pretty perfect. So He's just describing us, Owen. 
<laughs> it's just a scrubbing <laughs> else. Apart from them being different, I think we're even starting to look like. Well, a do you remember that? Do you remember point, that, that right? reference in the first bit to a to a bearded, portly woldsman that she's just killed? Yeah, there, there you go, guys. Hey, 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 hey! We can cut this interview to be as short as we want it to be. It could end yeah. up just you reading the opening paragraph or the opening word. Yeah. It, it, here's Jonathan it's in his just, new book. Yeah. Scarlet. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. just say that morning. That's it. And join us next time on Double Book. So, tell, can you um, tell us about the writing process for you when you're approaching a new series? Because yeah. you're well known for your series. You had the fantastic Bartimaeus trilogy, and then a, a cheeky fourth book, and you've had Lockwood and Co. So, what's the writing process? Not just for the first book, but when you're approaching a whole new world and a whole new trilogy. Um, so, so for me, always it starts with a single image or, or, or a single scene and in this case that usually ends up being the first uh, scene in the book and in this case it was the, the idea of this character uh, sort of waking up next to some dead men you don't know who the heck they are and a bit like Owen just said you know in that in that opening bit you you seed in all kinds of little teasers and um, clues which make you kind of interested in what what the story might be and as a writer when I wrote it I didn't have a clue really I didn't know who she was or why she was on her own or you know where she was going to go but I, I, I was I was excited by that by that image um, and then you know as a writer you slowly you basically go on the journey with your characters you you you, you slowly explore um, uh, outwards with them and you investigate the world and you investigate who they are and what's their past and you know you gradually build it build it build it outwards until eventually theoretically you know down the line you might have you know a series of books and you've got the whole world explained and you know everything at the moment I'm you know working on book two and I'm I'm still there kind of feverishly trying to build outwards it's like in the cartoon where you've got some uh, you know, cartoon character getting chased, and they're having to sort of build. They have to build the bridge as they go. They've got to put bring it down frantically so they don't actually fall over the edge. Um, and it, it's it's a bit like that, really. I think that's very useful. I, we we do a question section later, and, and I think uh, one of the questions is about world building. So I think if hopefully the person is listening from the beginning, and they will oh, good. they'll be able to pre- appreciate your answer. I remember um, one of the things I admired about you, uh, Jonathan, when we were on tour uh, with Lockwood. Uh, was your preparation and you had your magic bag um, and maybe you could describe to anyone who hasn't seen your brilliant show um, what is it that comes out of that bag and what are the relevance of those objects well um so they, they, i always carry this around i was very envious of owen because you were always you you sort of strolled into whichever sort of remote portion of america it was and you 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 you'd, you'd roll up there with with possibly possibly a copy of your book in your pocket but sometimes not even that because sometimes you'd turn up with just like a, a piece of a4 which had the precise quote that you were going to be reading out during the during the show and you're just a man who traveled light and i was there with this massive bag in which i had um well when i was doing lockwood i had all kinds of exciting ghost hunting kit and iron chains and salt bombs and stuff but i also had um uh, lots of uh sort of early books that i that i'd written when i when i was a kid because one of the things that really interests me is you know how my own my own sort of creative journey started when I was really quite little and you know I've got these ridiculous little books that I did when I was about five or six and I was just feverishly writing Robin Hood stories because I'd read Robin Hood in Ladybird edition and I absolutely loved it and I I wanted to um to do my own version and and really you know sitting here as a as a sort of jaded slightly sort of hairier kind of guy I'm I'm still doing the same thing I'm 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 getting excited about some genre or some uh, some kind of world, and I'm trying to to make my own my own version. But yeah, I, I always I always carry around too much kit. 
But it was the I remember you all, you always took up a volunteer from the audience, and that was the highlight uh, of the show when this kid would come up, and then you would dress him up as a ghost. Uh, it's all, as one it's of always Lockwood good. Yeah, I'd, so I'd, yeah, that's yeah. right. I would dress him up in. We, we always had a sword, which is good. Sword, sword, um, a ghost hunter's belt with with infinite um, pockets. You know, with with uh, magnesium flares and salt bombs and um, uh, thermometers and all kinds of other you know key bits of equipment that you need to fight the uh, the supernatural. Um, and the iron chains were all were always a winner. Um, and these were you ever stopped at cu- an American customs? And uh, <laughs> excuse me, sir, you seem to have a sword and magnesium flares. Uh, surprisingly, I mean, surprisingly, ne- I never was, which always kind of disappointed me. But but I, it did it did beg a belief that I was allowed in the country because I had all these little vials of white powder, you know, some mysterious substances, and I had and I had you know, I had a sword and some chains. It's like you know, how illegal can you get? You know? <laughs> but no, they welcome me. With open arms. Welcome to America. Come come on. Did in. you ever get? It was did like, you ever get asked to do ghost exercise? or anything carrying all of that paraphernalia around i i, I never did no i i, I went did you under, wish you had the radar. would you would you be I, up for it would you do it i i would be but only if you guys were with me because to be honest I, i'd be a bit i'd be a bit scared i uh, we'd do that i'd do that we'd be up would for you that. be up for yeah, it absolutely. yeah i'd yeah. totally be up for that yeah absolutely. Well, well, we should we should set up a future episode think, of the podcast we'll have a, we'll have a special a special edition halloween special yeah that, that. <laughs> Yeah, that Live exorcism. Now, now, speaking of Lockwood a little bit, um, I read uh, on the uh, worldwide global interweb that Lockwood is becoming a Netflix television series. Is that correct? What can you tell us about that? It is indeed. I'm 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 extremely excited and um, uh, I'm sort of hopping around the room with with delight. Yeah. Um, so, uh, a complete fiction production company and uh, Netflix are teaming up to make a. Uh, the, yeah, the first the first series of Lockwood and Co. Joe Cornish is the uh, the showrunner wow. and uh, uh, the, sort of the, the the director and writer. And I, I've seen I've seen a lot of the scripts and they're they're fantastic. Um, I'm very excited about the casting and I can't talk about that yet. All, the annoying thing is I can't talk about it very much at all, except that it's all very imminent. I think, theoretically, I think they're they're starting to film in July. Um, and that and is, are they doing the first book or all three or what, how, what are they doing? What they're well, doing? again, I'm not, I'm not, I think I'm officially not allowed to quite, to quite say, but yeah, cer- certainly the first book is going to be, going to be involved. They're not doing the full, they're not doing the full five book series in one. In oh, one okay, but they're, um, they're doing maybe something in the middle. But they, 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 they're, they're going to play around yeah. a little bit, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. And they're, they're being, they're being very true to the spirit of the, of the books, which is obviously lovely for me. I went back when I when you put up something about Joe Cornish. Um, I went back and watched Attack the Block again, and I and I think his humor and your humor will really gel really well. I think it's going to be uh, absolutely fantastic. So, um, congratulations! On I'm that. really I'm I'm really chuffed. Yeah, the Joe Joe's script for the first one it's lovely because he there's a, there's obviously a lot of stuff in there that that I'm familiar with because I you know I wrote the original thing, but then he's putting all kinds of new little nuances and his own his own um, humor. So you you've got this fusion and it's um it's, it's deeply well potentially I think deeply kind of cinematic and um and very funny. So yeah, I'm I'm f- fingers crossed. I'm very excited. Well, fantastic. And what's what's next for uh, Mr. Jonathan Stroud when you pack away Scarlet and Brown? Well, um, so Scarlet and Brown will be with me for the next year or so, at least. I'm, I'm working on book two, possibly a book three to come. Um, we'll have to see. And this, this is where the world building comes in, because, you, you know, potentially you could go on forever. But I'm I'm assuming that um, three books might be about the, the limit. After that, I do have this desire to return to my 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 first love, Bartimaeus, um, uh, who's Oh wow! Bartimaeus the genie, and I, I wrote a 
I wrote a little bit of a fragment of a book a few years ago, and I, you know, I really would love to 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 do that. So I. I That's know. a very rich world, as I know to my cost from having um, uh, <laughs> done and enjoyed having having grappled with doing a graphic novel adaptation of the first. Uh, Bartimaeus book, um, sorry, Cab, which is fantastic, but it's an extraordinary rich world that you conjured there in a kind of world of Victorian uh, ma magicians and, and their apprentices and so on, so, um, which was an absolute uh, prime example of, of world building, both very convincing and also particularly expands through the whole trilogy. One of the one of the as I struggled to fit it in, he said bitterly. <laughs> yes, you, you still have this sort of slight, slight twitch I can see in your eye, but it's, yeah. it's um yeah, it's one of the pleasures of doing that. If you if you do create, as as you guys know, if you create something that that feels quite robust and three dimensional, then you know there's always this 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 sort of slight urge to go back and uh, and and explore it further. So yeah, before I drop dead, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind doing that. Brilliant. Jonathan, thank you so much for being our first ever guest on Double Booked. Um, we, we will yeah. we will get you back to do some real life ghost hunting, which I think is an absolute uh, an absolute well, must. Exorcism. Exorcism, real exorcism. And Jonathan's yeah. fantastic new book, The Outlaw, Scarlet and Brown, yeah, is out now from all good bookshops at, at $7.99 or less. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you, guys. See you soon. Take care. So that was fantastic to hear from um, Mr. Stroud. And we're going to go now from what I would regard as high culture, which is uh, a new book by Mr. Stroud, full of creativity and genius and well-crafted writing, to let's just say something else. It was rubbish, but I loved it. Tell me, how did it happen, for God's sake? Why does the sun come up? Hmm? Or are the stars just pinholes in the curtain of night? Who knows? What I do know is that because you were born different, men will fear you, try to drive you away, like the people of your village. So what, what is the subject of your, it was rubbish, but I loved it. it. This week's It Was Rubbish, But I Loved It is the original Highlander movie. Um, which I remember from the 80s um, very, very fondly indeed. I, I was first attracted to this uh, fantasy epic um, by the soundtrack, uh, which was uh, recorded by my favorite band at the time, Queen, who did a lot of the music, inclu including the uh, the single. Very often in those days, it was a single that went along with the movie, and it, it was was called it's kind of magic i don't know if you remember of course that so when i, I when i saw the uh, video for the single i immediately uh, sought out the movie and I, and I think i approached it in the right way i was prepared prepared to give it a lot of leeway because i really loved the band and in certain ways you really have to give this a lot of leeway for example uh sean connery is cast as an egyptian uh, who makes like zero attempt to adopt any Egyptian affectations whatsoever, including accent, accent skin tone, or clothes. Is he, st is he still? Um, he's still very Sean Connery. Ah, yes, he's totally, totally Sean Connery. I'm Sean Connery, the Egyptian. It's like amazing. And does, then the does, Scott, let me, the let me ask you a question: Does does Sean Connery like herbs? Partially. <laughs> I know, I know you'd love it. I know you'd love it. Uh, so to paint me, uh, paint, paint me and our listeners 
uh, both of them, because there's three people here, paint me and both our listeners a picture of when you first saw the film and how old you were. Was it in a cinema? Were you on a date? Were you with mates? And what cinema did you see? And paint us a picture for you going in with your with your expectations of seeing a little bit of Freddie and Queen. Uh, no, I, I did not see it in the cinema. Uh, we lived in a rural town called Wexford and there wasn't really... There were, there were two cinemas. I, I believe one was closed at the time, but actually you would get one movie a week and it would be the biggest movie uh, on release at that time. So Highlander would never have been that big a movie, although over, over the decades it has become a, a cult classic. So I would have seen it on a very strange device that uh, our listeners will not probably remember, which is a VHS tape, um, so a videotape. Um, and we had one of those uh, VHS machines that possibly could play the tape or alternately could eat the tape. And on this occasion, uh, luckily, uh, it could it would play the tape. So um, the setup of the movie is, and you don't know going in because it was we did now you know everything about a movie before you ever see it. But in those days, you didn't. Um, the setup of the movie is that there's this guy, Connor McLeod, who's living in modern day New York. Uh, and he's he has an antique store in modern day New York, uh, but you found out that he is actually five hundred years old, and he is one of a strange race who, for some reason, all have to cut each other's heads off until the last one standing, and he wins the prize. And there's no like now everything is explained to within an inch of its life how this happened. Uh, what's everyone's motivations, uh, you know, their backstory. But the whole backstory is a little, there's a couple of voiceovers and one of them is like, from the dawn of time we came, we don't know why, <laughs> we have no idea what we're doing. We just have to cut each other's heads off. And that was, that was it. And we were like, okay, I'm in, sounds good. So you get all these five, There's, there's actually a scene, isn't there, where the lead guy says, what, Why? Why can there only be one? Why do we have to do this? And and Sean Connery just says, "Why are there stars? Why is there a sun?" <laughs> and he does, and that, yeah. that's it. He's just saying, "Well, look, there's yeah. stars in the sun. You don't know how they work either." And that's yeah, that's, it. that's the And whole it's thing. kind of um, it's not really Pixar quality backstory, if you know what I mean. Uh, and then the lead guy, Christopher Christophe Lambert, obviously a Frenchman, he's cast as the Highlander, a Scottish man, and he does make an attempt at a Scottish accent. Uh, and the less said about that, the better. But in spite of, and the, the special effects are not great. At, at one point, Christopher Lam, Christoph Lambert levitates, and you can see the wires lifting him up. And in order to uh, disguise that, they kind of put these lightning bolts that they must have drawn in with pencils. Uh, so it, it's all pretty bad. But it has a lot of things going for it. And I, I think the, the best thing it has is the villain. He was played by Clancy Brown and he's the Kurgan. And if anybody can find a better uh, villain in, a, in an action movie, I mean, he's right up there with the diehard villain. That's how good he is. Uh, and I think, so basically it's a movie about all these guys are, can only die if you cut their head off. And um, who's going to be the guy with his head? Who's going to keep his head um, in the end? And it happens, I mean, I don't think I'm, uh, I don't want to ru- ruin the ending, so I won't tell you who it is, but uh, it's not the Kurgan. That, that's all I can say. Who came from the steppes of Russia and I think used to eat babies, I think. That, that was one of their 
that was one of the bad things they did. So it's a, it's a ridiculous good time, but it manages to make sense inside its own world in ways that I think a lot of modern movies don't, don't make sense. And it's been imitated a million times. There's a new imitation out now, I think called infinite about a group, a race of people called the infinites who live forever. And, uh, they try to explain the whole why they all try to kill each other thing, and it doesn't really work. So, if you want the original, go back to the Highlander, uh, and they they made a sequel where they tried to give the backstory, uh, and the backstory they gave was that they were all from another planet, uh, and then they came down in some kind of mad spaceship. Uh, I can't even I don't even understand it. I've seen the movie about three times. It's it's an awful movie. But the guy who directed it, who I think was Russell Mulcahy, an Australian, what he did brilliantly was the transitions from one shot on one world to another world. He was so a very famous would... 80s video director, and you can recognize his directing yeah. style because every single, we need every single scene, there are about 25 massive Hollywood fans off stage blowing air so that everybody's hair is on the side of their heads and permanently being blown back like they're in a music video. There's neon lights everywhere and there's lots of very quick cutting between yeah. close-ups of people, um, which happens just to be a technique that saves lots of budget when you don't need to show anything behind them. Yeah, um, absolutely. The, the, I think the, most like memor- the most memorable transition he did was... Uh, Connor McLeod is in his antique shop thinking about the past. And as he thinks, he stares deep into his aquarium. The camera goes into the aquarium and then rises up to the top. And actually, you're now in a Scottish lock and uh, you have transitioned into the past. And it's, it is, it sounds very melodramatic and it is melodramatic, but it's also quite masterful. I think when it came out, uh, it didn't do very well. Well, I've got two. But I've over- got two trivia questions for you now. So one of them is about the budget. So, the, so the Highlander, the movie cost nineteen million to make. Okay, I guess at least yeah. one million of that was was um, Sean's Egyptian dialogue coach. Um, how much do you think it took <laughs> worldwide? How much do you think it took? So it cost nineteen million. How much did it take that year? Have a stab. Thirty-five million. It took. Tw- it took t- twelve million. 12 million. 12 million. So it was actually, not- it was actually a flop. It didn't even, that, it, it has since, you're absolutely right. It's bizarrely become a cult and it's had two two or three movie spin-offs and there was a whole animated series. But at the time it took, um, it took 12 million worldwide, which was, a, which was you know, uh, terrible figures for a film that cost 19. And 19, even then 19 probably wasn't a huge No, budget, it, was, it wasn't uh, a massive amount, but it was, you know, it was a decent night out in a curry house, you know. To be honest, and uh, whenever I go into New York, um, you know, we, we go a bit, but maybe twice a year, and you're driving in from the airport, you drive past the famous Silver Cup sign, and you I always flash back to the, the final fight scene between Connor McLeod and the Cargan, which takes place uh, on that rooftop. So, I, I really would recommend if you're a fantasy action fan, looking that up, and it's just come on to Netflix now, so I, I did watch it again. On Netflix and has been remastered. It looks pretty great. Uh, uh, but glad have they, have they, they remastered the script? Have they remastered that too? <laughs> they have not remastered the script or the special effects. Yeah, right. It's just like you can see you can see that the wires now more clearly. More clearly. And I have my, <laughs> my second trivia question to you is: Do you know the circumstances under which the script was written? Do you know the story of the script, which was written by Gregory Wyden? Do you know the story of the script? 
I don't. So I feel like I'm I'm not a real fan. Well, no, no, but you'll you'll like this, and I think listeners to to our podcast will like this. Uh, Gregory right, Rome, wrote the script as a final year pro sorry a final year project in his writing degree at the University of California. So he wrote wow. the screenplay as a as a project, not intending necessarily to to sell it. It was an idea that came to him when he was walking around the Tower of London, looking at old uh, old historic stuff. And his tutor thought it was so good that he gave it to an agent who thought it was so good that he sold it and it became a movie. That is like a that's like a, a real Hollywood uh, rags to riches story. We should um, we should pretend we're film students and well, in the case of in the case of Highlander and the scenes in medieval times, it's a rags to rags story. Shall we? <laughs> Be honest. My, I know my laugh sounds very high pitched, but in real life, that's just that's just a microphone. In real life, uh, it's a very deep Sean Connery type chuckle. But um, Sean is very good so, in it. He he he's very flamboyant and he's clearly enjoying himself. Yeah. he did all of his scenes in seven days and then just took his money and went home. Seven days. Yeah, and I th- and I think he he went into the sequel on the condition that they killed him within five minutes or something. So yes. he didn't he didn't survive very long, but. Uh, yeah, you can, but he is brilliant. Even though he's playing an Egyptian, I think he's described as an Egyptian peacock at one point. Yes, uh, he is fantastic. He's Sean Connery. And he just has that magic. So, and when he does the voiceover, watching. there's a very strange echoey effect, isn't there? There's a kind of like strange echoey effect to it that makes it sound like he's speaking to you from the past or speaking to you, you know, in in your head from a memory. And apparently, I was reading today that that echo effect was caused because the voiceover was a later edition and Sean Connery recorded it in the bathroom of his Spanish villa and that's why it's echoey. <laughs> and, and they liked the effect and just left it. Oh, yeah. I'd say they, I think Sean Connery probably told them they liked the effect and left and it. They yeah. said, and, they kept, and they kept it in. So that's uh, fantastic. Um, but now it's time for something sensible because uh, I believe the internet has been on fire with people looking for more advice uh, from from me, believe it or not, um, in, in the section we like to call Agony Owen for two reasons. First of all, because it is a play on the old Agony Ant, but also because it... Uh, I experienced quite a lot of agony trying to give sensible advice to, uh, to to sensible questions. So maybe you could give me a hand at this time, Andrew, because I think you're the more sensible one of the two. But agony, Andrew, that sounds really good too. Thank you for your question. Agony Bone will be with you shortly. If you're calling me the more sensible one of the two of us, then you know you're in quite considerable deep trouble at that, at that point but here's our first question so we were talking with um jonathan about world building which his book uh, as i said in the interview got particularly praised for and here's a question from um uh, vinnie egg i've thought about writing fiction and non-fiction the problem with fiction is how do i ever design a new world from scratch um other times i feel like writing about my life and then i run into the thought who who wants to read that so how do you design a world for writing i think to approach it like that it's very overwhelming if you're approaching it in such a way that i have to build a world today it's it's as overwhelming as the idea i have to write a book i have to write a hundred thousand words you need to approach it i think in a piecemeal way which I suppose it's not a great phrase, but little by little. So if you have your chapters broken down, 
you think, well, today I have to talk about, for example, the port where these sailors are going to meet and the boat that they're going to steal or whatever it is. And so that is what you have to describe. And the world then will build itself as you progress. So don't think about having to write 100,000 words about this strange parallel universe. Just think about, well, today I have to write this piece. And before you know it, your building blocks will start to stack up. And in maybe six months' time, you will have uh, your world. And of course, keep copious notes and I, I think you'd agree with me there, Andrew, as we both do that. And because if you're building your world, you have to remember what it is you already built so that you don't contradict yourself uh, going forward. But in brief, I would say little by little, one uh, part of your world at a time. And would you have anything to supplement there, Andrew? Well, only just that, that, that um, when it's a new world from scratch, most world building and even in um, uh, the Outlaws book we were talking about, it's, it's not, you're never starting from scratch. It's usually a variation of a world, isn't it? It might be a world where Hitler won World War II or where the Roman Empire didn't fall, but it's usually a world you're not starting on a blank planet uh, where it's a completely alien culture and nothing is the same. So it's usually you've got a lot to build with, but you need to think what are the changes, what's different about a world where there is a fairy civilization under the ground as opposed to our world where we, we don't know that exists. What, what's the actual difference? And then And then hone in on that a bit absolutely because there will be touchstones it, it, you're going to be able to breathe air there will be water there will be ships there will be bipeds probably there will be language so 90 percent of the stuff is going to be familiar to the people reading it so you just have to worry about that uh extra 10 percent, and you can do that one step at a time brilliant okay rachel um from uh, america says uh where do you sorry when you have multiple ideas how do you choose the right one? Um, I have trouble focusing on one story or one idea. Uh, and, al- and also adds, I think, in a quite undermining way to both of us. Also, what gives you the courage to share your writing with others in public? <laughs> Which I like, I like. <laughs> you fool. You're both fool. How, could, how, how dare you? How can you? Yeah. Think? yeah. But, so, how did you ever? How did you ever think? Yeah. For a second. You, so let's deal with yeah. the first one. How do you know when you have multiple ideas? How do you choose the right one? Well, firstly, I would say you're lucky to have multiple ideas. Uh, a lot of people don't have. But I, I found myself in that situation with almost every book where I have a few contenders and I don't know uh, which one is going to work. And uh, So what I do is um, I work up each one a little bit uh, and my subconscious is running this like a horse race uh, and eventually one will pull ahead or maybe two. So I'll do a little bit more work on those. And my rule is, if I get past 10,000 words, I'm finishing that book. And that's, that's my rule. And I don't break that rule. So if I, go, if I get to 10,000, then that book is getting finished. Uh, and I will plan it out. And I will get it finished. Because psychologically, it is very, very positive just to finish the book. There will always be time. And you're, you will try to undermine yourself by saying, oh, but, but this idea B is much better. Let's do this other idea. Uh, but you've got to stick to your guns. And once you get to that, whatever that point is, that no turning back point is for you. And as I said, for me, it's 10,000. Uh, you've got to stick with that idea until the end. Now, I'm not saying you've got to abandon the other ideas. You can, of course, keep those in your notes. Uh, make a little fo- a fo- folder about... Uh, and good ideas and you keep it in there and maybe that's one 
uh, that you'll get back to. And you will be surprised that your sneaky little unconscious is going to be working away on that idea while you are finishing um, your initial book. So uh, in brief, as usual, have three or four things on the go. But once you get to a specific point, then that is the book you commit to. And as for question B, Rachel, um, it might have been meant as a little bit of a, a joke there, but I do worry. And I think we all, Andrew too, we, we all worry about, will anyone want to read this? Is anyone ever going to be interested? And funnily, the only time I don't think like that is when Andrew and I are collaborating because then I trust him enough to know that he would tell me and he does tell me and I will tell him if we don't like the idea. Um, so when we're working together, I relax because I know that if both of us like it, then it's probably a pretty good idea. And a, and a worst case scenario is I, I, I love collaborating. I love collaborating with you. A worst case scenario, thinking if this book goes really, really badly wrong and we're pursued by a lynch mob with flaming torches and end up on the gallows, at least you will be there too and we'll have some like kind of gallows banter uh, you know, in the seconds before they pulled the trapdoor, and and that for me is you know what it's all about. That makes that scenario that makes, that makes just it all that less bad. That's why, just yeah, the you know we'll have that two seconds. But I do imagine that they'd be very you know with these gallows people. You'd be halfway through your amazing final quip, and they just pull that lever. Uh, they would, so some some people have no respect for gallows humor. <laughs> that you just say, oh, but I'll tell you one thing. Yeah, boom. And then the thing, the, the thing you would tell them would be. That would so, be very um, Arabian Nights, wouldn't it? We would have to keep the crowd entertained on the gallows or they pull the switch. That would, that would be it. We would have to outlast the whole crowd and eventually maybe if they drift off and the guy pulling the lever finally drops to sleep and we can escape. That, that would be I how feel we could, Yeah, I feel we could do that. I, though. I think that. that's actually one thing we could do. Anyway, that's not, I, I don't think that's helped Rachel at all, but we, we did our best. Well, I think on that on that image of us uh, on a gallows with a man uh, about to pull the lever if he's not permanently entertained i think that we will leave agony owen for this week and um say yes. say thank you very much to everybody thank you very much to jonathan thank you. for being our first ever guest on double booked yeah thanks jonathan and uh please spread the word that we're not as nasty as people think we are and next week's, um, well, next podcast guest is the very, very talented and multi-award winning Jenny Valentine, who is going to come and talk to us about her new series of books and, and writing in general, um, which, which will be great. That's great. And if you have any questions for Jenny and indeed any questions for Agony Owen or Agony Andrew, uh, you can uh, contact us through the usual social medias or you can send us to our uh, podcast email which is doublebookedpodcast at aol.com, and we will get to as many as we can. After, after we had uh, recorded the very first podcast, I waited about uh, three days after, after Seamus, our brilliant producer and sound engineer, sent us the final cut, and I played it, and I said, great. And about four days later, I went to the email address, and I was really disappointed that there were no emails in. And after about an hour, I remembered that it hadn't been posted publicly anywhere and then no one had heard it whatsoever. <laughs> but I spent like four hours going, not one, not one email. But, and then I went, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, absolutely nobody's heard the email address. I was able. Yeah. But, so but by the I'm time, just saying, listeners, yeah. don't, make me, don't make me go through that again. It's all, no, um, poor Andy was very, that's all I'm very saying. upset. Um, so, all right, regular double bookers, we will see you next time. This is Andrew Donkin in London saying um, thank you for joining us. And this is Owen Colfer in Dublin saying uh, Slon Live, which is goodbye to you all 
in Irish. Double Book was produced by Owen Colfer and Andrew Donkey and Seamus Redmond. Sound editing by Seamus Redmond. Theme music by Liam Bates. This has been a Silver Foxes production. Remember, the value of Silver Foxes can go down as well as up.